0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome to New Books in African American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Adam Emile. On today's podcast, I have Dr. Kadada E. Williams, professor of history at Wayne State University, and she is the author of They Left Great Marks on Me, co-author of Charleston Syllabus, and host and producer of the great podcast, Seizing Freedom. But Dr. Williams is on here to talk about her brand new book, I Saw Death Coming, A History of Terror and Survival in the War Against Reconstruction. Dr. Williams, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. And so I'm, you know, I've been a fan of yours for a while. Um, I don't know if you remember this, but you actually sent me a copy of your first book, I don't know. This is this is way 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 back in the day, um, and so you know, ever since then, you know, the kindness you've shown, and also through the the scholarly work that you do, and your amazing uh, Twitter slash X um, uh, uh, posts, and you know, I don't even know what you call them now. It used to be tweets, but you know, whatever, whatever. Tweet. Elon, yeah, exactly. There's
2: <laughs> still tweets. It's still Twitter. I'm not calling it X.
1: There it is. The only thing I call X is my middle name, and so, exactly. um, <laughs> and so, Dr. Williams. Once again, thank you for coming on. And so, um, you know, I, I'm really interested um, of late of getting to hear my, my the authors that I have on here to actually be able to read uh, some of their work because you know you may be able to you may be able to you know hear it on maybe an audible which is not voiced by you or and you know might be able to go to uh, one of your talks, but there's nothing like being able to hear your author speak about the book. And so can you, can you pick a passage from the book that really speaks to the essence of what you're trying to do in the book?
2: Yes. And so I'm going to do, I'll ask you, do you want me to do two paragraphs or three paragraphs?
1: Shoot. Let's go for all three.
2: Okay. All right. The thunder of hooves broke the silence of the night. Jarring Caroline Benson awake in White County, Georgia, and alerting her that white men were coming and that she and her family were in imminent danger. For one man of Spartanburg County, South Carolina, it was the barking of his dogs. For another man in the same locale, it was the sound of white men's bodies crashing into his door. For others, it was the whoop of the rebel yell, high-pitched hoots of whistles or bugles or screams coming from their neighbors' yards. What these families heard was a shadow army of white men in their communities. It sounded like death was coming. After the invaders left, there was a return to an eerie silence, broken only by the cries of the dying or the pain wails of their surviving kin. Like Edward Crosby, who saw white men on horseback descending on his home in the dark of night, James Alston of York, of York, South Carolina, saw death coming for him in the form of disguised white men with guns in their hands. Another man saw a notice nailed to a post, threatening to slit his throat if he crossed the bridge to visit his property in Tuskegee, Alabama. Still another looked outside and saw his yard in Chatham County, North Carolina, full of armed white men. A Florida's couple, a Florida couple's young children sat watching from the woods as white men whipped and assaulted their parents. A father also watched in stunned silence as a gang beat and repeatedly stabbed his son in Limestone, in Limestone County, Alabama. A wife watched too as her husband lay dying on the family's cabin floor near Glen Springs, South Carolina. The things targeted people saw when they thought death was coming for them stuck with them for the rest of their lives. Southerners who dealt with or witnessed Southerners who dealt with or witnessed these white men conducting paramilitary strikes in the middle of the night called them night riders and midnight assassins. Targeted people also used the term Ku Klux as a shorthand for the Klan and other vigilante squads. When black families were awakened in the middle of the night, When death was in their yards or at their doorsteps, they understood the white men outside their homes were part of a larger enterprise intent on denying Black people their freedom. These groups of men included enslavers, Confederate soldiers, and other whites who rejected a post-Civil War world in which Black Americans could be free and coexist peacefully with whites under the auspices of the federal government.
1: Goodness, see, I see. Once again, this takes me back to to seizing freedom, and you know, hearing you narrate um, the experiences of, of seemingly many of the people that you um, that you just spoke about here. And so, um, why did you choose out of out of all of the two hundred, I think two hundred and forty or fifty plus pages, why why this particular passage? Why does this speak to the essence of what you're trying to do in the, in the book?
2: So, what I do in the book is try to center the story of reconstruction. Reconstruction's expansion of freedom and democracy and its overthrow through the stories of African-Americans who endured the violence of Reconstruction being brought down. Um, And I thought this passage was a way to illuminate, to center those people uh, and to illuminate the kind of experience that they have um, that I think you can only get from those firsthand accounts.
1: And that makes a lot of sense. And so, and and also, you know, throughout the book, and I think reading your reading, I saw death coming now, although I'm not in Florida now, I am a Floridian and many of us are going to be down in, in Jacksonville in um, I guess now less than a month's time. And um, we're recording this for, for the listeners listening soon and later, um, Wednesday, August 30th. And, uh, for those who will know what just happened in Jacksonville, um, uh, unfortunately, another 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 situation where three black people literally saw and uh, literally saw death coming. And, and and reading your book and and also thinking about how a lot of the stories that you talk about are in that northwestern section, right—the lift every voice and sing portion of the state of Florida. You know, and so, and so reading um, your book and then also hearing you here just, just really contextualizes what we just experienced, you know, as, as, a, as a race and as a nation um, in this past week.
2: Absolutely. And there are definitely through lines, you know, in terms of this violence and the violence that we just saw in Jacksonville is an extension of um, the violence that I discuss in the book, it is also it still comes from this larger freedom, black freedom-denying enterprise um, of people who are invested with white supremacy.
1: Absolutely, and so I'm I'm, I'm also thinking about um, you know this is you know another another great publication that you've uh, given to us and in the world, and so I'm also thinking after writing and contributing to now multiple. Uh, book projects over your esteemed career. You know, shout out to the, the newly awarded, uh, a pro, not associate, like it says on the book, but professor of history. So once again, shout out to you. Um, you know, why did I Saw Death Coming become your next monograph? Right.
2: Um, I think that I Saw Death Coming is the book I wanted to write first, but didn't mm-hmm. have the time, insight or experience to write, Right. Um, I think like many scholars writing about Black Reconstruction, I spent a lot of time in the Klan hearings. I knew there was a deeper story than the story that's reflected in the existing scholarship, particularly about like how much detail survivors provided about their families before and after the violence. And so what I knew I wanted to do was to use their accounts um, to tell a different story about Reconstruction And I think to also challenge this popular narrative of reconstruction, supposedly failing.
1: And, and I think like that is really important as we, once again, harken back to what's been going on um, in in my state of Florida and, you know, with everything going on with uh, AP African-American studies and, and and the war on uh, the contemporary war, because, yeah. I was born in 1992, so right before I was born, Eric Foner was on firing line, you know, I think with, uh, was it uh, was it Liz Cheney or, or one of the Cheneys? Um, and so, you know, as I was going through my PhD early on, I wondered, what's going to be, you know, what, what's going to be the quote unquote culture war of my era? Uh, I didn't have to worry much longer, yes. <laughs> so, yes. you know, sixteen, nineteen, and then, you know, the, it, it keeps on going. Um and so uh so so it, it is good to also think about you know the books that people write and whether or not, you know, you know what what's really behind this being the book now versus what you do later, which is a great segue for this next question. And so you publish your other book and article writing projects in mostly academic um publishing houses, whereas I saw Death Coming differs from them because Bloomsbury, shout out to y'all, um, is a more public facing publisher. So how did um, writing specifically for a public audience shift how you produced this particular book project as opposed to the other book and article projects from the past? Right.
2: right. So I think that for me, it has like a a, it has a deeper story. So what I know is that the Guardians of Black narrative, history and memory, um, those folks were committed to the work they produced being widely read and consumed especially by Black people, right? They wrote for Black people, thinking about Black people, and a world that might be more just to them. And so in my mind, I saw them as creating blueprints for a future um, where Black people could be free, equal, and secure. And so that kind of their, their work and the work that was inspired by those earliest Black historians drew me to history. These were the books my parents read, grandparents and other kin read. I come from a history loving family, um, and those works had informed their love of Black people and mine, right? And but I learned quickly in graduate school that I had to produce a particular kind of work, you know, to be accepted as a Black academic historian. And I think a lot of people I went to graduate school with, and a lot of my colleagues, uh, even after I started. Um, being a professor, we're kind of ambivalent about the significance of taking like the rigor of our work into a larger um, and sort of engaging what I call the history curious and history loving public. And so I didn't think I could write I Saw Death Coming and earn tenure and promotion. So I wrote They Love Great Marks on Me, a book I love. But after writing it, Adam, what I have to say is that I realize kind of how much I betrayed my history loving family and people. You know, I wrote a book they wouldn't want to read, not because they're not intelligent, not because the topic is too hard, but I wasn't writing with them in mind, Right. You know, the book has got jargon, readability issues that I rationalize and other academics rationalize as kind of being necessary to be heard by our peers. And so I wrote the book I felt I needed to write. I still, I really truly love, I saw that, uh, I truly love, um, they left great marks on me. It taught me how to write books. It taught me um, how to be a better historian, how to think about writing, et cetera. But in writing I Saw Death Coming, I, and especially writing it for Bloomsbury, I had to be more thoughtful as a storyteller. And I had to be, I had to, I had to sort of center the wider audience. There's this um, writer turned editor, Paula Hogg, and she says, academics write for themselves and it shows, Right. They write for tenure, promotion, jobs, getting their degrees, et cetera. They're not thinking about readers to the degree that they could and should be. And it shows in how they write. But writing for a public audience, you have to think about and center their wants and needs, right? And so some of their needs are not only about historical context. A lot of their needs are about like good storytelling, And the elements of a good story, character, setting, plot, narrative arcs, and more. And so for writing I Saw Death Coming, what I had to do is sort of shift my focus and think about being a writer instead of just being a historian. And a writer's job is to sort of reflect the world and communicate that to an audience. And so for me, I had to think about the audience, a much larger audience. And sometimes that audience is not necessarily my family, but thinking about what the audience needs, I can get that insight from my students and from my interactions with the public. The kinds of questions that they have, the lack of context, you know, that I may encounter that informs some questions, um, help me think about the things I needed to do to help them understand the story I was going to be telling So that means like a longer introduction. That means showing people before they were attacked, you know, showing the run up, like all of the things they had done with their lives before they were attacked. And then also using that to help them, help readers understand what the violence did to them. So thinking about what the audience needed was one of the big sort of shifts in my mindset in terms of uh, writing this book. An academic audience, they only need so much right? Um, Because they're, you know, your peers, they know your archive, they know the historiography, you don't need to go down all of those paths with them. But for a larger audience,
1: you do. Mm. And, And this is going a little off script here, but it makes me also think about, you said, you wanted to write this book, like you wanted this to be your first book, which then goes to a question about the, the, the standards of dissertations which oftentimes are you know what you are the first drafts of your book your first book anyway so i guess my question for you then is as someone who's reached the professor level which is rarefied air for so many people can can you um think out loud for us a bit about how maybe standards could change a little bit about the, the Maybe not the, I guess more of a question about style of writing in graduate school, which I feel like is the, the first step of kind of overhauling uh, the, the, the system.
2: Right. So what I would say is that for graduate students who are interested in reaching a larger audience, they, I think for the most part, cannot rely on academic only professors necessarily to give them what they want and need. What they can do is to find writing classes. There may be some creative writing programs in their uh, in their graduate um, in their graduate school uh, that they might be able to partake in. But they may also um, be able to take classes with writers. There are a lot of online writing forums where you can learn about plot, where you can learn about narrative arcs, etc. For me, like a great one during the pandemic, was the roots. Was the roots words, wounds. I always get that wrong. Um, and they've, they've changed a little bit. Roots, wounds, words. Um, I took like this great class on narrative arcs, right? That, you know, I didn't know what a narrative arc was until I took a class on a narrative arc, but now I see and think about the writing in a very different way. Um, and so thinking about yourself as a writer, thinking about yourself as someone who wants to write for a larger audience, You can take the initiative and to get that training, to get that experience, you may have to read some more books. You may have to take some free classes or some um, discounted classes um, to start thinking about how you communicate in a very different way. Now, what what some professors are going to want to see, and some of them are still going to insist on seeing, is that very sort of standard academic argument. But what you can do as you hone your writing skills is to figure out a way to or figure out like how to stitch that argument into a story. And there are more and more um, frameworks for doing that. There, there, there is an argument and there are arguments and I Saw Death Coming, but they're wrapped in story form. And so as you go through the story, you can see elements of that argument coming together. But you get that through the focus on the craft of writing, not so much the focus on the uh, on history. I think that graduate students can, to the best of their ability, try to prod their programs to try to provide some of that training for them, and maybe it can come through the professional organizations, if not through, if not necessarily through their home departments. But the argument that I would make is that they do, they don't need permission to write this way. They might need training and they, I think graduate students, you know, you may have to do certain things for the dissertation, but beyond, once you graduate, how you write your book is your business, right? Um, There are certain programs that will not TNP a scholar if they publish with a trade press. And you need to know who those programs are going in, right? Um, Sometimes they'll make an exception for some people. Sometimes they won't for others, right? Um, And so, but you need to know that. But if you're going into a program that doesn't require you to publish with a trade, uh, publish with the university press, then you've got some options, right? About how you do that. I think the other thing is to be in conversation with other historians, historians who are trying to reach a larger audience and trying to learn from them um, to get tips and insight from them, there, it's a completely different world. and all I can say is buckle up, right? Um, but the thing is that but, but the thing is that you need you need information. And we've got some people who like hoarding opportunity and information. so they don't necessarily want to share some of the moves that they're making. They don't want to share that they're writing that they're taking writing classes. But Adam, let me tell you, a whole bunch of folks were taking writing classes during the pandemic, right? They're not saying it, right? I'm saying it. I was taking writing classes. Um, I'm also in conversation, like I'm in a writing group and I recommend a writing group. So you need your academic only writing group and you need your, uh, the other group that I have that's much love. It is filled with Black women historians who started off as traditional academic writers and who are making the leap into the sort of larger trade world. And so we are all actively learning, right? We're all taking classes, different kinds of classes on these things. um, And we're testing things out in our writing. And the kind of group I have, we read everything from idea. To your you know outline on an outline of a chapter on a napkin through reviewers' reports, right? And so we see that we see projects coming together and we re, you know we read like the whole point is to read drafts, right? And we share uh, some historiography. we've got there's overlap in terms of our historiography. There's not much overlap in terms of our archive, but we are all committed to sort of thinking about ourselves as writers, as historians, but also as writers and learning some of the new skills we need to in order to reach a larger audience. And what I can tell you, Adam, is that this is the most fulfilling, this is the most fulfilled I have felt as a historian. The learning about the writing, the having the book out in the world, having regular, regular people reach out to me and say, I was reading in your book and I learned so much. And, you know, it was in my public library and I was able to borrow it. And I saw these testimonies are online. And so I went to take a look at them. And so for me, thinking about the earliest Black historians and what they wanted and thought Black history should do, I feel like I am now finally paying some of those debts.
1: Mm. I Does that love make that. Sense? Oh, it's as vivid as your writing, okay. um, and so no, and, and I appreciate that too because I remember someone probably a year or two ago, we'll say about a year and a half ago, said, "Adam, you do know that people, even while writing their dissertations." we'll have, we'll work with a developmental editor to be able to do it. Because if you think about the arc of your career, at no other stage of your career will you produce something like this without someone on the inside as a developmental editor, an editor at, at whatever stage of the game. Right. So why not now? And so when when they told me that, I was like, for
2: what? real? You're like, what's what? a developmental what? editor? Wait, 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 and... what you,
1: first of all, what is that? How much right. does it cost? And the second of all, or third of all, I'm like, wow. Like that kind of information for a graduate student. Like, like what I'm hoping as our listeners closer to, you know, the end of August and then those who are listening years, decades from now are, whether you're a graduate student or not, that you feel a little bit of freedom. Like that you're able to seize a bit of writing freedom here, yeah. because when I learned that, like I was like, damn, I, I thought everybody just was not literally doing it by themselves, but effectively like not working with someone at that level of the process. and right. so that that was like, whoa, but and part it also of that, took it's because too.
2: people are not talking about it. Right.
1: Right? So this is
2: the opportunity hoarding and information hoarding uh, that Mm -hmm. we have going on. You know, and a lot of it's by people who feel the need to be special. Right. Who think that there's only room for one as opposed to room for the many. And so that's you know, I think that says something about some things that are in the profession. Um, And so, yes, people people should be doing that and learning about it. I took a six week developmental editing class because I wanted to know what went into it so I can improve my writing, I can improve the writing of my graduate students and the writing of people in my writing groups, and maybe even so I can do some, you know, not full-time, but maybe part-time developmental editing. Um, And so what I would say to any graduate students here is, and this is to your point about seizing some freedom, you're going to have to seize it because the academy isn't going to give you permission. Historians aren't going, professional historians that sort of traditional, you know, the the sort of traditional mainstream, you know, historians are not going to give you permission. But the important thing is that you don't need their permission to go out and get the training that will make you um, produce work that is fulfilling and impactful. And so, you know, part of it may be writing some grants so you can get some money to pay a developmental editor. Um, It may be, you know, trying to figure out like ways to um, get some programming on campus um, to sort of help you all do that work. Although like on the one hand, some of it can be helpful, but I think more long-term developmental editing um, or more one-on-one is actually much more helpful. And so, you know, think about those strategies. I think the best work is done in community. And so sometimes it takes graduate students to create that village and to rally, but also recognize that there are people who, from their own insecurities and their own investment and opportunity hoarding, may do what they can to try to deny you that. And so I would say don't, don't wait for them. Go out and get that opportunity. Go out and get those opportunities and go out and get that training and share what you're doing. Share your resources with other people.
1: Amen to that, amen to that. And so, you know, we've been saying, you know, season Our you know, writing freedom, season Our writing freedom. So let's, so let's go to the season freedom real quick. So, you know, as, as folks uh, probably know by now, you are the podcast host, writer, and producer of uh, Seizing Freedom, a great podcast that we'll uh, share in, in the notes for the episode. Um, because let me tell y'all from episode one, and, and actually, I should say this. I should say, actually, thank you, because I, have, I wrote a chapter in a uh, New Jersey textbook that's coming out uh, down the line. And the story of the, I forget his name, it was a brother who fled from the Chesapeake Bay, Virginia, down to Fort Monroe. He had that famous quote.
2: George Washington Field, or was it um, Harry Jarvis?
1: Harry Jarvis. I think it was Jarvis. Uh, yeah. I think it, I think it was Jar- uh, Jarvis Jervis. I think it was him. Where he says, uh, talking about the Civil War is not about. It'll be a
2: black man's war before it's through.
1: Yep, yep, that one. Because actually, um, I, 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 it was through seizing freedom that I got that story. Then I, I able, then I was able to find his actual like where that actual quote um comes from. Um and I realized I'm like, oh damn, I had it the whole time because I have the uh was it the slave testimonies from uh John Blasting game, R.I.P. And so once again, like I could talk all day about we could actually have a specific episode dedicated to to seizing freedom. That might have to happen. Uh but to to the question at hand, how did it, because you start, we're talking about storytelling. because at the end of the day, whether a book or podcast or whatever, it's all about storytelling. So how did your storytelling developed through Seizing Freedom as a podcast, a new venture, help inform how you, um, in all the ways, uh, produced I Saw Death Coming?
2: Right. That's a great question. Um, so working on Seizing Freedom, I had the honor of working with master storytellers. Ronald Young Jr., Joshua Moore, Kelly Hardcastle-Jones, these just simply amazing storytellers. I was the only historian on the team, but everyone else works in audio. And so what they knew and what I came to learn is that the brain processes sound differently than it does sight. And the show's producers kind of knew that. And so they pay attention to what listeners hear and they bring that to the story. So as hosts, you know, at first, you know, going into this, I went in like with my historian brain, right? You know, these are the facts, ma'am. You know, this is what's in the archive. This is what's in the historiography. And no, you're not going to have the historians coming after me. Um, And so, you know, I brought my skills as a historian to the show. And many of those are informed by sight. But they kind of helped me working with them, kind of helped me think more about pacing about narrative arcs, about characters, um, about lifting people up and, you know, figuring out like where you sort of, you know, where the the arc should sort of go up and where it needs to come down, et cetera. Um, And to sort of think about the story, what listeners are hearing. And you've also got things like sound design. So as a historian, like I can't write sound design, but I can be attentive to as I think, um, or as I hope, um, readers and listeners to the show understand from the excerpt that I read about the importance of bringing the all of the senses to a story written about the past, and so that's why I start with you know Caroline Benson hearing right? Like what they hear and then what people see. Um, And, you know, doing that, you sort of think about all of the ways, like how important the five senses are for understanding and for story and sort of communicating meaning. And so working on the show helped me think about that. And especially as I started writing for the show, um, I had to sort of, shift my focus and become more deliberate and thoughtful about story um, and storytelling and all of those elements of it. And I was doing all of that while also rewriting parts of the book. And so for I Saw Death Coming, you know, part of what happens is that once you get, once the book kind of snaps into place, right. Where, you know, when you're writing a book, you often have to get that the crappiest of drafts out of the way to understand what it is you're trying to do. But at some point after that crappy draft is done, as you continue writing, the book snaps into focus and you're like, now I know what I'm doing. But after you do that, you're going to re or I rewrite the book from start to finish actually several times, like, several times. And so while I was writing Seizing Freedom and hosting the show, um, I was also sort of drawing some of those lessons about writing and storytelling and pulling them into I Saw Death Coming in some of those rewrites. You know, I would get off the recording, uh, come out of my closet from recording, and I'd go to the computer, go to a different computer, and I would rewrite sections, right? And it's sort of like thinking about the sound of the show, um, and how my book how my book uh, would not only be read, but also thinking about knowing that there would be an audiobook. And this was also a time when I started listening to audiobooks, too, and listening to the good narrators and the bad ones. That's another conversation.? Okay? Um, and so I started thinking about like how my book would sound when read, right? And so there are, you know, then you start to rewrite sections and say, you know, I think this can be, I think, I think I need to, I think I need to hit this again. I think I need to revisit this. And one of the things I also started doing while revising the book um, is I started, someone on Twitter made this great suggestion about letting Microsoft Word read it to you. And so letting Microsoft read the entire manuscript to me, I was able to hear the book. In a very different way, um, and I was again doing this all while sort of working on the show during the pandemic, and so everything just happened to come together in a way that I think made me a better storyteller and a better writer. Excuse me, a better storyteller and a better writer.
1: And and it's so interesting hearing you say that you wrote the book over multiple times. And 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 I think for me that's interesting just because when you when you see a book, you know, when I see the the advanced reader copy and you just do not know. Like you see, you see, you read the book, you read the acknowledgments, you read, you know, the footnotes and, and the notes and such, but you truly do not know the full process until you get to hear them debrief a little more on a podcast like this and others um because I I listened to your episode on um drafting the past um and and it was was great like it actually helped me um I listened to it a few times when I was driving between Williamsburg and Richmond um and so um it, it was helpful it's actually why usually I ask more questions about the writing process but I was like look Kate took care of that. She, she, y'all, y'all go, go, go listen to Kate Carpenter. That's, that's, that's the homie. So, uh, just typically my, the listeners know I'm usually very, very process oriented before we even touch more of the content level stuff. Uh, but thankfully our, our good friend, uh, uh, Kate Carpenter took care of that. Um, and so speaking of content specific, um, I want to get into that a little more. So we had you start the the show off by reading an excerpt uh, of, I believe, three paragraphs. And so it makes me think whose story in I Saw Death Coming sticks with you the most and why?
2: Well, I would say there are too many to count. But if I had to choose one, I would choose the story of Abram Colby. And Abram Colby was a black man father came out of slavery became was elected into office in georgia georgia legislature see i've got i got so many I got so many people I need to account for um yep, yep. and so you know, I had seen his story in a lot of accounts, a lot of history a lot of historians work on reconstruction. And a lot of times the historians are using his account to talk specifically about a lawmaker who's driven out of office. And as I read his account, what stood out to me was the fact that his daughter died as a result of the raid um, when the men came to get him. And what he talks about, he uses this language that they broke something inside of me. And it wasn't anything, it wasn't like a physical bone, it was what they did to my baby girl, right, when they came for me. He said in his testimony, that is the thing that grieves me most of all. And for historians reading these accounts, what they have tended to do is to focus solely on the political violence. Right? The driving, the sort of denying black men the right to vote and trying to drive elected men out of office. And that's a part of the story. But all of those men, men like Abram Colby, what they all essentially said, especially those who were directly attacked, is that losing the vote or maybe being thrown out of office was the least of what they did to me. Right? And what's very clear to Abram Colby is that his daughter dying as a result of a raid mattered more to him than losing his uh, elected office, right? Or being driven out of office. And I feel like that's a point that historians have missed in reading, uh, in their interpretation of the sources. It's not to say that they're callously indifferent to that suffering. It's that I think some of them have like a kind of psychic reaction to A, Black people in pain, articulating pain, be a pain that they can't fully recognize if it's not physical and see when it's at the hands of white people. And so I think there's kind of like a psychic, I cannot deal with this. I refuse to deal with this. Um, and I am the kind of historian who will not turn away from that, who will not turn my head, who will, who will, um, refuse to accurately witness and faithfully witness a man detailing how devastating his daughter's killing for him, uh, his daughter's killing was for him. And so I think that's a big thing with the book, including in terms of reaction, you know, for there, there are, you know, a number of reviewers, particularly white reviewers who are kind of like it's agonizing and it's just sort of like, it's only agonizing because there's been so much denial up until this point. Right. There's been a refusal and I, I, you know, I wouldn't let, Readers off the hook, and I you know my editor and I we had had a conversation, I was like, there should be images. We should put some of the visual culture from the time. And my editor said, no, the images give readers an escape. It lets them turn their head in a way that I don't think we should give them. And so that's part of the reason why there are no images in the book. He's like, I want them to I want I want them to sit, except for there's a map, and that's the only thing. Right. Uh, that's the only visual in the book, um, because we you know, he does, you know, and and I think I was subconsciously trying to give readers an out. But my editor is like, we're not giving them an out. That is it, it's give them an opportunity to turn their head and we're not going to give that to them.
0: slash n b n fifty to get fifty percent
1: off see that's fascinating had you not told me that i wouldn't have even i wouldn't have even realized that wow um well hey no that's actually really that's, that's an interesting way to think about it too because i know that um like because for instance i what you just said about dealing with the non physical traumas you know it makes you think about um i think it was uh, Professor Painter's uh, Soul Murder um, piece uh, or uh, essay from it was a while ago now, I guess. Uh, but 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 that was one of the first things that when you were speaking, and I read that, f- I think, for the first time in full in um, a graduate seminar with Dr. Deborah Gray White. And I remember reading that and I was, I was like, wow, this is, this was... Maybe thirty or forty years ago, give or take, but it felt, and even now, I especially, feels so present uh, when we talk about memory and and trauma and and and, and slavery in its in its afterlives. And so, one of the things that your book does really well is shines a bright light on how Black people survived the Reconstruction era. Um, and so, for me, I'm, I'm interested to know what strategies. Did Black people um, and Black people in communities um, devise to survive? Right.
2: Well, I'll say that there's a wide range of responses um, there's armed self defense, there's flight, evasion, compliance, defiance, and more. I think historians have liked to focus on armed self defense, but survivors' accounts make clear that self-defense, armed self-defense, wasn't always the best option if you wanted to live. And if you didn't want to get your children or your wife or your husband killed, right? Um, And so this is where, um, you know, making sure that we are acknowledging what survivors themselves said, they believed it took to survive and uh, to survive and attack is really important because I think part of what happens is that there are two things. One, people are projecting their own, right? Their own sense of, well, this is what I would do. Right. And Adam, I'll just sort of ask you and I'll ask your listeners. If our men came to your home tonight, are you ready to defend yourself? Right. And if you, you know, or, you know, you know, or if you were visiting your family and say, you know, like you've got siblings and, you know, very young nieces, you know, and nephews, like infants, do you know how you all would respond, right? Would someone just start, would some, you know, would someone just grab a gun, right? And, you know, and just start shooting while there are infant children in the house? Now, some people would do that, right? But what survivors are saying is that, I had a gun, but I knew if I used a gun, we would all be killed. And my decision to not use the gun is, while, is why we are still alive today. And so I think the other part of that is there are Black historians in particular who are really sensitive about the white gaze, right? And it's sort of like, well, if Black people, if Black men aren't defending themselves, then that's going to make white people think that you know that, you know, that they're not capable, that they're not manly men. And I just kind of, I call BS on that, right? Or what I'll say is I'm not writing in the sort of shadow of the archive. Like I understand uh, the white gaze, but I'm not going to let that um, make me dishonor survivors by ignoring what they themselves said it took to survive this violence. Because what's very clear in the historical record is that all of the acts of, or all of the responses that I just uh, described, all of them played a role in enabling many families to survive the attacks. They lived, you know, because they ran right? Because they complied with what the men did, you know, with the men ordering them to uh, enter their home and to make up a lie and let them sit down and have a conversation with them about how they weren't going to take away white men's power. There were Black men and women who said, okay, come on in, right? You know, like understanding that they can't shoot their way out with 75 white men around their home, right? Even if you have a gun. But I think the other thing to sort of the a point that i try to make in the book is to push back on this idea that um that everyone has that every that sort of self defense and some of these responses are a choice um because there are accounts like abram colby's and others or excuse me um um abe um, a- Lyons's excuse me Um, and others where people freeze. They experience what would be called paralytic fright, right? And they don't have a choice, right? And there's a tendency of historians, um, problematic historians, often male historians who are like, well, if they didn't fight back, they were cowards. And I think that a man who is in the grip of paralytic fright, who cannot control his body, who cannot, whose brain has shut down in the middle of an attack, cannot. Self-defense isn't a choice for him. He has no control over his facilities. And so there is this sort of tendency for the all uh, the sort of the sort of agency crowd um, is to act as though agency is static. And what the survivor's testimonies show is that it's not. It goes back and forth like it's on a pivot, right? So, there are times during a single attack where people experience moments where they can sort of assert their agency. And there are times when they literally cannot. And there are still times when they can, but they think part of exercising my agency is trying to make sure we all get out of this alive.
1: And it makes me think so, to pivot real quick, where do you fall? Just this, you know, I I saw death coming aside and just the broader. Perspective of you as a historian here, where do you fall on the agency question in Black life? Especially in the 19th and like this antebellum, postbellum era.
2: I think people have it until they don't. Again, so, you know, -hmm. so so my thing is that it's not static. Uh, It doesn't exist in a vacuum. Um, And I think I feel that that is made clear when you have survivor's accounts So what is your take on that? Because, you know, so so like I said, like, I do, you know, yes, recognize agency, but I also recognize that it has its limits and that it is not one thing, even during a single attack. So I think part of it is that there's a tendency to have this kind of flat-footed conversation about agency. And I also think that this is another example where people are more focused on the white gaze. Right. And the sort of, um, you know, what Nell Painter said at the Future of the American Past conference at the opening of, um, I feel it was the opening for the Blacksonian, where she talked about the shadow over the mm-hmm. archive and that oh, shadow. Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah. And yeah. that, you know,
2: that shadow being sort of like, what are white people going to think uh, about, you know, about the history that I'm writing about and how that shapes you know, how that informs some of the moves that historians of African-Americans are making. Um, And so that's why I think this sort of agency conversation or the agency debate and argument is a lot more complicated than people want to acknowledge.
1: Yeah. And I also think it's generational because I also think for a, like, like I think about some, you know, folks of Dr. Painter, Dr. White, and, you know, uh, Dr. Clark Hyde and, and these historians from that era had different, they're responding to a different world than somebody like Benjamin Quarles and John Hope Franklin and Carter G. Woodson and, and folks of that era. Whereas, you know, for me, when I'm starting graduate school in 2015 in, in my master's program and then starting a PhD in 2018, that's a very like literally the kind of the the norms I would say in I, I would say the norms in this time frame are different, um, and and so for me I I think about that in the sense because I know uh, was it uh Johnson's article on agency came out I think around what the early two thousands I think, and so so yeah I I, I do wonder like. The the kind of questions that people ask and the kind of gaze that they think about also in part comes from money. I also think too because I I still remember a professor one time suggesting a topic to me because it would be easier to get you know to 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 not only finish but also get a book contract at the end of you know your time frame. Which hey girl uh, you know I I get it I get it. Right? I get it. But I get I think,
2: it, but you know, but I think that speaks to the point that it's not just generational; it's also about their own individual politics, right? And you know, their own you know their own kind of mindset uh, when it comes to this because trust. There were and are some people who would take that topic and gobble it right up, right? Um, because that's. And that's not generational. There are people who, you know, and I would say the same thing in terms of even like the questions and answers. Um, it's not just generational because even some of my peers, um, ha- you know, are really invested in what I think are outdated ideas. But that's my business, right? Um, but I also think that you know I'm I'm working on this piece that I need to like be disciplined and finish writing on um, the sort of denial I've encountered by historians in particular and resistance to me telling this story. And so what I've been sort of, I'm sort of grappling with um, this sort of concept of, so not just denial, but epistemicide. So like knowledge killing, knowledge killing. Um, And it is, you know, in this case, it is not that I don't have, I have an archive, right? My archive is available online. And to have professional historians who've examined this archive, who've written books that have won prizes on this archive, to raise questions about the same, st- you know, so, you know, I am using a different part of the same testimony. But I, apparently I'm not supposed to do that because I am drawing attention to Black people articulating their pain from white violence. So there's a kind of resistance. Um, There's a kind of denial about um, the story that I'm telling. And so I'm working on this essay where I sort of work through these different kinds of psychic reactions historians in particular are having to or have had to me telling this story. And so some of it has to do with. Um, my historic, you know, my working on trauma, other parts of it has to do with, you know, Black people not being able to John Henry their way through a Klan raid, right? Um, and other parts of it are like the sort of racism that exists within the profession, right? You know, you can't, you you know, you can't believe Black people, Right. You can't believe their testimonies Um, or the only reason they're testifying. I got this at one place. The only reason, you know, they were testifying because they wanted a handout, even though like no, no handout was offered, right? No handout was offered, but these are the kind of moves that, you know, this, you know, historians have been coming at me sideways on this project for a minute. Uh, And I have been taking notes, Right. No. So I, can you know, know, I got, I got my receipt, the time, the place and the person right now. I probably, I probably won't name them in the piece because I'm talking about a kind of type. Right. So it's not just one person, you know, people there, you know, I can, I can sort of create a taxonomy about like what's going on, these different weird psychic reactions to this story. And maybe it's me. Right. Right. Maybe they're responding to me, and I allow for that possibility. But either way, there's something going on, Adam, and I'm trying to get to the bottom of it.
1: Well, I, I want to get to the bottom of how you do what you do. So, I, I want to know how do you un- how 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 did you for this project um, unearth the history of black survival, and and what strategies and, and methods um, did you devise to bring forth black survival in? you know, in, in Black black survival um, narratives of Black Reconstruction.
2: Right. Well, I would say, I don't know that I unearthed it as much as, you know, because well, it's been there all along for a century and a half.
1: Can I give you some more credit than that, sure, though? Sure, Because Because I think this also goes to why, um, and, and mind you, I, I usually don't butt in. I usually wait. But I think that this is an important time. The reason why I think to your point about how people prize winners can write and use the same archive. This is when I knew that I had reached a new stage in my dissertation because I can read a book and I know the exact full, I know where they're pulling from. I know where they did the ellipses. I know all those different things, but it also goes to show you are, although are using the same Archive. Then you haven't discovered or uncovered anything uh, um, content-based different, but you look at things differently. Your your perspective is different. And I'm not just talking about racially or or, or gender. I'm just talking about you as the individual person. S- but it also goes to show why there's a, our profession will always be here because there's always going to be people who see things differently. And so to me, I th- I think you're not necessarily unearthing like new information but you're able to uh, interpret it differently. And that provides an opening for so many more people, you know what I'm saying? So, so I think that for you, because even going back to Dr. White, she used all the same stuff that everybody else was using, but she was like, uh, but what about the experiences of literally what about this other group of people that literally have not been written about in terms of black women? Um, in the plantation south, so so I'm, I'm gonna let you finish. I'm not going. I'm not going Kanye to your uh, Taylor Swift here, but um, but I did want to butt in and say um, y- give yourself a little more credit than that. Yeah, you, yeah. you did you did a little something here.
2: Yeah, uh, <laughs> I appreciate that. And you know, and the thing is, like, and I know I did something. I know I did something different. And I think for me that involved not only a close textual read. Um, but a particular kind of praxis, sort of like going into um, going into the archives, the kind of work I wanted to do. And I got that because of my own um, curiosity about targeted people. And um, I used the frameworks of post-colonial studies and critical trauma studies as frameworks for interpreting the testimonies. Because the testimonies exist, but there are, you know, the people at the time, my subjects, they don't have the same language of trauma that we use today right? But they are articulating being completely changed by what happened to them in these attacks. And I learned about lynching in my undergraduate history course. And I wanted to know more about like how the families experienced it. And so that, so that was me in sophomore year. Like I've wanted to know about survivors since then. And when I went to graduate school, when I'm in the program at Michigan, I'm casting about. Julius Scott says to me, well, how's oh, You know, Julius, rest in peace.
1: RIP. Love yes. Julius.
2: Love Julius. Um, and so, you know, Julius said to me, Julius said to me my first, you know, the first time I met him, well, hasn't everything that needed to be written about lynching already been written? And I was like, no, sir. My voice got high. I was <laughs> like, I sat up in my chair. No. Um, because what I recognized was that this part of the story hadn't been told yet. Um, and even throughout all of the time I was in graduate school, it wasn't being told. And so I'm looking in the scholarship on lynching and racial violence in the US and you know, and I'm not finding it. And so I go to Elsa Barkley Brown, and I was like, Elsa, this is what I want to write about, but it's not here. And she just laughs. She's like, because you're looking in the wrong place. Uh, She's like, you know, you cannot, uh, she's like, you cannot understand these aspects of violence by reading the scholarship coming out of the US, um, coming, um, being produced by uh, historians in the US. Um, They don't know how to write about violence in the way that you want, um, you know, if you're looking for a model. And so she made suggestions and it was for the scholarship coming out of what was then um, post-colonial studies and what evolved to a degree into critical trauma studies. And they, they spend more time with survivors. They pay more attention to survivors They understand the sort of larger politics of conflict, et cetera, but they are focused on survivors. And when you spend a lot of time with survivors, you notice, right? You learn how to interpret, you understand their behavior, et cetera. And so that scholarship coming out of critical trauma studies helped me understand the silences in the archive, right? Or the articulations, because people are using, you know, um, Eliza, uh, Eliza Lyon, she doesn't say my husband experienced paralytic fright. What she says was that it was as though he was in a perfect scare. So they have their own language, right? And this is also before Freud and all of his people get together to articulate what trauma is. They have their own understanding. They have their own um, sort of vocabulary, their own grammar. So there is this sort of Black grammar of survival. And what critical trauma studies did was it gave me a framework for understanding it in these sources. Does that make sense?
1: Oh, it certainly does. And it also, I was digging uh, below me to find another book that speaks about survival, uh, Surviving Southampton. And it also takes me to think we're in a moment, too, where, you know, her book comes out in 2021, right? We're still, uh, vaccines have barely been, you know, circulated. And the Eurobook is uh, being finished, obviously, as the, you know, stage, you know, the earliest chapters um, are, are being written and now in, in 2023. And I think both of your books, um, you know, sometimes I think about how, you know, people sometimes write review essays of where they combine, you know, the books. And I'm thinking someone needs to write a, um, someone needs to write that review essay of uh, combining your book with uh, Dr. Holden's book too. Uh, because, because I think both of your books really, um, for someone like myself, who's trying to understand that how how did Black women and, and families survive the American Revolution? Um, e, both of your books help provide perspectives and, and frameworks to try to better answer questions like that. Specifically, when we're coming out of a moment, that we're still in a moment because cases are still you know, cases are rising again. Um, Uh, of COVID and people still trying to survive, you know? So, so, so I think both of your books really do a great job um, of that. And my next question also goes to this as well. Oh, oh, yes, yes, yes.
2: But so I think, so there's one of the things I want to say is that for a long time, you know, there were people who were questioning, well, I don't know if you're, you know, I don't know if you can really be a historian and don't present that at the AHA because, you know, people might, you know, People might question, you know, your loyalty to the profession. You know, it's kind of some of the comments that I got. And so what I finally, I was listening and processing this information. And so finally, I started to call people out on it and say, you know, I have an archive. You know, did we stop being an archive based discipline? Did y'all let the folks at Michigan know? Because they didn't get the memo because I thought we were an archive based discipline. Now, I have an archive. You have seen my archive. And so, you know, whatever issues you have in terms of my historic, my historicization of uh, Black people's articulations of their trauma, right, through their testimonies, that's something that you're going to have to work through, right? But this isn't about me not being a historian. What I did was go to other fields like history. You know, there were things that I couldn't know only using history's tools, And so I went to critical trauma studies and I brought the tools back to history. So I am still a historian, right? I still have historian sensibilities. And what I have shown, I think, is that it is possible to do this work, right? To historicize people's articulations of their pain and trauma, especially when you have direct testimonies. From them. Um, And so what I hope I've done, and I know I'm not the only person doing it, is to open up a space for younger scholars and other scholars to do this kind of work and to be thinking about the kinds of questions we need to be um, asking and answering. So yes, I want to create space, um, but I also have some some recommended readings if you want some, you know, Here are some books, you know, to sort of think about, like, how people are experiencing conflict during conflict. Um, And so, like, I am the kind of person who's like, I want to bring more people, like, in this case, I'm admittedly a troublemaker. Um, I want to bring more people into this work so we can make sure that we're doing it right. Right. So the more eyes, the more ears you have, the more people who are reading some of the scholarship in critical trauma studies and thinking about how we apply this to the archive and even recognizing the limits. There's some things we cannot do, but we need to have those conversations and we can only do this work in community.
1: Mm-hmm. No, and, and that's really, really helpful. And I will take any and all you know, recommendations, uh, for sure. Um, and, and and your work also helped me to think about stuff, and it also took me back over a decade, because uh, I remember I took a class. Um, I studied abroad in, in England, um, in London, in 2012. And I took a class um, on, uh, I believe it was on genocide in um, it was the first time where, you know, you know, I learned about like the Holocaust and stuff when you know, when you, you have the Holocaust survivors come into your class and such, but never from a more academic um, space. And so reading your book and then hearing you um, articulate the critical trauma studies and, and speaking about uh, genocide it was helpful to take me back to a previous time where I thought I was going to take more of my work in that direction but while also reading in all pages, I think it's uh, 39 to 40, to take you to an argument that you made, which I found really interesting, it's because you argue that we must, using the definition uh, from the UN, uh, describe white reconstruction violence as genocide. What factors did you see in the primary sources, y'all? Mm-hmm. Once again, she is in, this is an empirical study, beautifully written. Um, but what from the primary sources did you see that helped inform your interpretation that white Reconstruction violence was, in fact, genocide?
2: So I don't insist that sort of genocide occurred, that there was one thing. You know, I try to thread that needle with a bit more care. What I argue okay. is that the U.N. rubric for genocide illuminates patterns, Of deliberate targeting of people that we might not otherwise see. Now, those patterns reveal something. I'm going to explain what that means. So that UN rubric, I think we have to recognize um, the context in which it was created. It is a legal and diplomatic document created for a particular moment. And so the legal framework is, you know, so for today... Like when we look at Ukraine and other conflict violence, you know, there is a the question about whether or not there is enough legal, ev- there's enough evidence to withstand legal scrutiny in a court of law, right? So that's the threshold for the UN definition today. And whether or not there is enough to merit military intervention, right? So that's the definition. But scholars who study conflict say that, yes, okay, you know. I understand that that's what you need in order to decide whether or not to intervene in conflict around the world, but the pattern, the rubric is useful for understanding patterns of things that look very much like this. Um, And so the violence I cover can't be prosecuted in a court today, right? There's no military intervention dependent on whether or not the word genocide is used by me or by anyone else to discuss reconstruction violence or not. Right? But the rubric helps us see patterns that we might otherwise ignore. And those patterns are really about that deliberate targeting. And so what we know from the rubric is that, and from, you know, scholars interpretation of it is that there doesn't have to be a formally declared war. The body count doesn't even have to be high, which is often something that people think about genocide. Um, What is required is deliberate targeting of a population with killing Serious bodily harm or injury, bodily harm or mental harm, sexual violence, forcibly transferring children and deliberately inflicting on the group um, conditions of life that are calculated to bring about its destruction in whole or in part. Now, the Freedmen's Bureau Records, the Klan hearings, the Klan trials, petitions and memorials from Black Americans and newspaper accounts from the era document all of those practices by white people who are trying to bring down reconstruction. And so, the vi- I wouldn't say that they committed like genocide as in like the sort of scale of killing, you know, to the same extent as the Holocaust. But I also don't think I also have a problem with the Holocaust being the standard bearer, right? Recognizing that it is unique in and of itself, but it was never the first or only event of mass killing in the history of the world. And so I try to thread that needle carefully because I know that genocide, especially when it's applied, you know, to uh, white people killing black people, uh, makes people who are invested with these ideas of American exceptionalism or Holocaust exceptionalism uncomfortable. Right. And so I'm kind of okay with that. Like, I know I know people feel some kind of way about it. Um, And so I try to. And so what you see there in the book is me trying to thread that needle carefully. Right, and saying you know the violence is genocidal in nature, um, because part of the sort of legal that legal definition is you have to understand intent, right? And they are not literally trying to kill all of the black people. What they are trying to do is to deliberately target the black people who are trying to make the most of freedom, right? And those who won't sort of lay down and accept white people continuing to rule over them. And so, you know, I try to really thread that needle. I think we have to look at the rubric and the records. And so for any listeners who are in their feelings about it or anyone else who are in their feelings about it, I would say, look at the rubric and look at the historical records and tell me those things aren't happening. It is, And I know they can't do that. Um, (laughs) The elements of intent in the UN rubric are about setting the law in motion and sending troops That's not applying to violence that happened a century and a half ago. But it still can help us. That rubric helps us see the pattern of targeting what, you know, this violence can look like. Um, And so some people would call it genocide. Like I know Walter Johnson has called it genocide. Um, But I've also had, you know, other historians come at me like, you can't use genocide. And so what you see in the book is that me trying to... Me trying to mollify, me trying to sort of like tread carefully uh, as much as I can um, while still retaining, you know, you know, while still holding or being true to what I understand is definitely the direct and deliberate targeting of Black people Mm -hmm. who are seizing their freedom um, after the Civil War and during the Civil War.
1: Right. Yeah. And, and, so and, and it's complicated you and messy. I, yeah. I, you know,
2: I, I mean, you know, like I, you know, I, I welcome your ideas or your reactions to, you know, what I just said.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, for me first, I, I appreciate the, um, uh, I appreciate the intervention and I also appreciate you, uh, letting us know, kind of like where you sit on it. Because like I said, my interpretation of your writing of it was that, and, and I thought about, it. it's funny you did this. I thought about this and even articulating and creating the question. I was like, should I say genocide? Dole, Because genocide is like, there, there's a, it's final. Like it's, you know, there's nothing that comes after that. There's a period. Um, and so even just, like I said, with the question I was like, uh, do I really want to? I was like, well, I think that's what she said, and uh, this is uh, let's bring it to the fore. Um, uh, but no, I think no matter if you call it genocide or genocidal, at the end of the day, what else do you call what three to four thousand people that we know of that we know of killed? and and i think i had a i think it was dr Glimf who said this where people flirt with the numbers game similar like the slave trade of like the philip Curtin and such but like with the civil war where it's like okay it's a 6 it's a 7 is it a million it's impossible to know it's it's truly an unknowable number we can give rough estimates but it's i think the best way to think about it is is 11 for, for something more contemporary. We have the people who died, who were killed on the day.
2: On the day, and then the people who died as a result right. of... Yes.
1: Exactly. Yes. Right? And so th- there's that famous, infamous uh, photo uh, taken of the Black woman um, coming out of one of the towers, covered. She does not die on that day, but she dies, I think, not that long ago, but effectively the life that she lived after was just consumed with just the trauma of the event, but then also the internal respiratory issues yes. that she faced.
2: Yes. And, and you so, know, and you know, like, so so I like Robert Small's, as, you know, and I know people, you know, Robert Small says, like, you know, in the 1890s, mid 1890s, he said that there are, have been 54,000 black people killed since Reconstruction or since the Civil War, is what he said. And so we don't know what his, we don't know what numbers he's reading, right? But when you think about all of the violence, when you think about the afterlife of that violence, when you think about um, people who are displaced for the violence, When you look, you think, when you add up the reports and newspapers here, and when you look at, you can imagine some of the records that as a former uh, lawmaker that he may have had access to. When you look at the memorials coming from the colored men's conventions, when you look at all of those records, you can see how those numbers could add up, right? And so, but I agree, you know, with the, I agree with the fact that we have to be mindful of playing the numbers game. Um, Especially because, like with the rubric, doesn't have to be a high body count. All you need is the direct targeting. And for some people with their investments in anti-Blackness, there's never going to be a number that's high enough, right? For them to accept that white people deliberately targeted Black people for killing. Free Black people, right? Free Black people. And that's the point that I make, you know, in the classroom and that I make in the book. You know, they're not killing Black people willy-nilly during slavery, They are killing Black people, but they're not killing them to the same degree as they're killing Black people after, during the Civil War and afterwards. And what we see about the killing during the Civil War, they are killing people who are self-emancipating during the war. Those are the people who are killed directly during the war. They're dragged back to farms and plantations, and sometimes they're not even trying to drag them back. They are killing them on the spot. And so, when we think about the numbers game, we have to think about, you know, when we think about who's playing this numbers game, what we get out of it, and the problems that are inherent to it. Um, I think I hope that that brings us to better conversations, more ethical, I think, conversations about what's going on here.
1: Very true, and and the per- and the 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 person who did it as best as anybody um, earlier this week, we were talking about him because he passed away on on the day before the March on Washington, that's W. B. Du Bois. And so um, deliberately throughout the book, you use Black Reconstruction, right? And and so um, I, I want to talk about him before we finish up here. And so earlier in your text, you emphasize the importance of Du Bois's Black Reconstruction uh, to your own scholarship. And so before we wrap up, what does Black Reconstruction uh, mean to you as a historian of the Civil War and Reconstruction era?
2: So I think it means to me, so Du Bois centered Black people in the history of this era, and he did it in a way that was really accessible, right? Anyone could and can pick up Black Reconstruction and learn from it. And that was something that resonated with me as a graduate student. You know, his work, I think, was a model uh, for me as a Black scholar who studied Black Americans Um and it was sort of, you know, it's in some respects, I feel like he gave me a kind of permission to do this work uh, and to do it well and to try to think about ways to do it well by centering Black people. But I'll also say that I try to do something different and telling a story Du Bois didn't, right? Uh, one about Black people being hurt and sometimes irreparably harmed by this violence. You know, Du Bois uses Black people's accounts, but his is a more economic and political history, Right. He didn't tell the story I've told about families and trauma. And I don't know that he would have approved of it, at least at the time when he wrote about Black Reconstruction. Maybe by the time he uh, died, maybe he would have come around. Um, But I don't know that. What I do know is that Du Bois was an inspiration in another way in terms of uh, serving as a model for calling things by their names, uh, particularly by calling in and calling out um, people who don't faithfully witness the archives. And so that's something that I think resonated and resonates with me in terms of the work.
1: And, th- and that's and that's really helpful to really think about, you know, the greatness of Black Reconstruction. But to your point, it is more of a military and, and political as opposed to a social history, um, which your work is, is definitely more... In Um, and, um and, and to your point, it also makes me think about. First of all, I, I, I was just at uh, in the bookstore at Penn, and I just looked at Black Reconstruction, thinking like, "My gosh, man, this thing's huge."
2: Yeah,
1: this thing is huge, man. And and first of all, I also think about like,
2: and it can be kind like of. Right. It can be kind of dry. Where yeah. Lying. I
1: ain't going to lie. Like my eyes sometimes, like I, sometimes it, my eyes did kind of gloss over and I was like, Oh, it's time. I need to read that over again. Cause I think I just kind of like, like my felt like I, I was reading in my, I fell asleep, <laughs> you know, my eyes are still open, but that, that gloss was real. Um, but, but it is think, it is good to think about where we, um, when and where we enter the the story of Black Reconstruction, and and also thinking about the, the the people, and also to think about what he could have done if he would have had access to the records that later historians were able to use, because I think one of the interesting, most interesting stories I, I remember reading and or hearing about the book is also just think of like the time frame that he's writing. What can he gain access to in um, the the I guess the twenties and the thirties and if I'm not mistaken, didn't he try to give like a it was that like a history conference or something that he tried to uh deliver a paper that effectively kind of builds on uh some of the arguments? And so just and, and this is him trying to do this to people in the history profession, which you know is we we if we're talking about the racism in the profession now. Jesus Christ, man! Right. Can I, only imagine.
2: But I think you know part of like he's writing at a moment where economic history, political history, military history are really very important, right? It's 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 what most historians are writing about, um, and so it, it you know it makes sense for him to focus on those things. But I would also say that Tom Holt has this great essay, and I think it's South Atlantic Quarterly there's a special issue on Black Reconstruction for the anniversary, for the sesquicentennial of Reconstruction, if memory serves. And um, so you got the Voldia glimpse, you've got all of these other people who are writing, but Tom Holt in his essay focuses on Du Bois' sources for Black Reconstruction, right? Um, And so part of it is, you know, what he has access to, but what he has access to is sometimes the writings of other white historians, of white historians, Right. Um, But he's reading and interpreting them in a very different way. But he's doing it, as you note, for that moment, sort of thinking about what are the things that they need to know, right? Um, And I also think, you know, to a degree, he's writing, you know, he's not fully under the shadow archive, but he is aware of the shadow, right, of whiteness and white supremacy and how white people are going to react to the book. Um, what I tried to do in Our Self-Death Coming was to come off from under that you know, to sort of be aware of the shadow but to write directly against it except for in that moment about the genocide of violence because I was like I don't have a whole bunch of time to spend like arguing with people about this so I'm going to try to thread this needle a little bit more carefully but what I did try to do in the book is to be really try to sort of be straightforward Uh, and and write in a way that was not only accessible, but direct and reflective of my personality, right? And what people get when they interact with me. And so um, I was in Riverside and uh, a scholar was like, this is a really Black book.
1: (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's always good to hear.
2: Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I was like, well, that's what I had in mind. So I'm glad it's landing the way I intended
1: it. (laughs) Good, good, good. Well, shout out to whoever that person was because I, it, it like that's one of the best um, uh, compliments that you can get yeah. as, as a as a black historian, as a black writer. This is a black book. Yeah, it's always good. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and, and so to finish up here, um, you know, and especially because of how we started the conversation and what we know in terms of the the, the moment that we find ourselves in, um, you know, in terms of the attacks on Black history, African American studies, and um, the 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 study of the, effectively the history that you're articulating in this book, and the opportunities to be able to teach it in in high schools um, and and across the country. So let me ask you this: What lessons from Reconstruction speak most vividly to our current moment in your in your uh, imagination?
2: So I think. That Reconstruction tells us like how fragile American freedom and democracy are, but how much Black people did to try to expand it and make the world more just and the price some of them paid. You know, not everyone survived that era and that fight. Um, But I also think that they gave us a blueprint for fighting to build a more just world, even if we don't live to see it. Right. Um, And I think there's also in there a lesson for historians, right, to step up and forward, to maybe spend less time arguing with each other and thinking about ways to sort of communicate this history to the larger public and to produce this history with the larger public in mind. Because some of the things that are happening in this moment, have, you know, it's not to blame historians for what's happening in this moment, but I think that historians stepping up um, to sort of be out there and helping educate people and push back um, is one of the ways that we can stop this history from being erased and stop this history from being distorted in a way that endangers our lives.
1: And hey, you did it. You your your book provides us to me, <clears throat> especially as someone who's who's from Florida, who is reading about St. Johns, Fernandina, Jacksonville, Clay County, Jackson County,
2: Mariana.
1: Yes, exactly. Like Monticello, not Monticello. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so it's yeah, it's, they they will, yeah, they they'll get you. They'll get you. Um, but reading about these places that I know and first of all realizing like, wow, like I need I need to send this to my mom because she's always like very much interested in Florida history and um stories of black people in the in the time frame, but also thinking about why in this moment, thinking about the the trials, the the Klan trials uh, and the t- that that black folks uh, gave testimony, you know, and, and it just makes me think about the importance of, of, of black people. You know, sometimes people say I speak for. We don't really need to do that. Right. In in this case, the, we have all we need. Yeah. For, for for us to be able to not give voice, but to let their voices shine right, through how lift them up, we narrate. Right. Exactly. To lift, lift them up. Lift their voices and let them sing. Yes. Right. Exactly. Shout out to the Johnson brothers. Yes. And so I just want to say thank you for this opportunity to chat. We've been we've been trying to get this on the thing. We've both been, so I'm happy we could get it done now yeah, and, yeah. and before the semester starts. And so y'all, if you've gotten to this point almost an hour and 30 minutes in and you don't know who you're talking to, you're listening to none other than Wayne State University's newest professor of history, Dr. Kadada E. williams who is the author of this amazing book, "I Saw Death Coming: A History of Terror and Survival in the War Against Reconstruction," published by Bloomsbury in 2023? And y'all, I'm your host of New Books in African American Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. Please rate us and review us wherever you get your podcasts, and show us some love on this episode as well, because this is definitely um, one of one of my one of my favorite episodes. Um, and hopefully it will be for you as well. And so until next time, you folks, I'm your host. And once again, Adam McNeil, Du books African-American studies. Over and out.